Please open up your Bibles as we continue to walk through the epistle of 1 John to 1 John chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. In the late 80s, there was a music group that was taking the music world by storm. Their songs were burning up the charts in 1988, 1989. They were so popular and so successful that they won the Grammy Award for the Best New Artist in 1989. So, here's a test for you children of the 80s. Ready? Do you remember who won the Grammy for Best Artist in 1989? Anybody? Okay, Peter. Millie Vanilli. Okay. Millie Vanilli was a a band, a French singing duo that had a, a host of catchy pop songs that made them famous. But there was one problem. They didn't sing a single one of them. If you'll remember, it turns out that not only were they lip syncing every time they performed, but the actual music itself was sung by someone else. The issue wasn't simply the lip syncing. It, it turns out that various pop artists lip sync their songs during their performances. But the problem with these guys is that they couldn't sing. It was all a con. As it turned out, they had to return their Grammy and Millie Vanilli as a band ceased to exist. And, and seriously, let's get those guys off there. They're kind of, uh, they ceased to exist, but later they released their own album under their true names. It was called Rob and Fab, and it was awful. It was absolutely awful. It was worse than awful. These guys weren't singers. They definitely weren't Grammy-winning singers. They were frauds. And the difference between them and the others, including the other lip-syncing artists, the difference between them and the other lip-syncing artists is that they had no talent. It just wasn't in them. There was no singing ability found within them. Now, Lord knows that this is the only time I've ever used Millie Vanilli as an illustration, and Lord willing, it's the last time. But it serves to illustrate the truths John is taking in taking us into today in this passage in 1 John 4, 7-12. through 12. In today's text, John continues his work to assure believers of their salvation by showing them the characteristic, the features, the hallmarks of true belief. And today, he centers in on, on what is in us. Today, we come to something we, we've seen before. And if you read 1 John, especially if you read it in one sitting, you'll notice that, that he seems to repeat himself. It's not that John was, was an old man who forgot what he'd already said. It's that he, he's, he's a good teacher. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he, he circles back to, to things that he's already spoken of before. But each time he comes back, he, he's, he's more penetrating um, and, and more searching with his words. In some ways, the book of 1 John is, is sort of like a spiral. Where John keeps coming back. Over and over to the same things. But in the process, he's driving us deeper and deeper into the truth. Now in today's text, John circles back to a theme we've already seen twice before in this epistle. Earlier in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Then in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And that's the, that's the theme of testing our faith by examining our love for one another. But this time he goes deeper. 
by teaching us about the source and the nature of true love, and thereby showing us that, that the genuine love that marks a believer is something that originates outside of ourselves, but is by God's Spirit put in us. It's in us. So the true believer loves because of what is in him. It's flowing out, but what is in him is there simply because of sovereign grace. So please turn to 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, if you haven't already. And please stand now as we read God's Word. 1 John 4, verse 7, and we'll read through verse 12. We stand in the honor of reading God's infallible, inerrant, spirit-breathed out Word. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for John, the Apostle John, inspired by you, Holy Spirit, who came back around and around to these same themes. And he doesn't let us just let go of of, of this truth that, that the believers are to love one another. He keeps pressing it home, and he'll keep pressing it home in the next few um, passages that we look at as well. But, but here today, Lord, we pray that you'd help us see the reasons that, that John is telling us that we ought to love one another. So give me a mouth to speak this morning, and give each one of us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, back in chapter 3, verse 23, uh, John summarized God's commandment by stating that, number one, we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and then, number two, love one another. Now, two weeks ago, we examined the theme of loving one another, and we saw that the essential birthmark, the the sign, the, the, the evidence that someone's been born of God, the essential birthmark of the child of God is love. But not just love in general. It's familial love, the love that we have for one another in the family of God. And it's, number two, sacrificial love, where we lay down our lives and our stuff for our brothers and sisters. And then finally, this can only happen because of number three, it's supernatural love. Love flowing from the Holy Spirit who indwells true believers. Now that mention of the Holy Spirit... Uh, flowed directly into what we looked at last week in chap- chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, I mean the 1 through 6, where John teaches us to test the spirits. And we saw that first we should test to see what spirit is influencing a person by examining what is coming out of their heart and then through their mouth regarding the, the person and the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. But we also saw that we can, we can um, determine what type of spirit is influencing someone by examining what they put into the heart regarding the nature and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Or, or to put it another way, do they profess with the mouth the apostolic truth about Jesus? And do they intake with the ear 
the apostolic teachings about Jesus. And so now in today's text, John circles back now to the theme of love that he was speaking of prior to talking about testing the spirits. So so we're back here on this theme of loving one another. So in verse 7 it says, Beloved, again we see John's pastoral heart, his love for the people. Beloved, let us love one another. And then John says, for. Let us love one another for. Now little words like for are important in the scriptures. For meaning because. And so what follows here are the reasons why we should love one another. Love one another because, and now John begins to give us some reasons. And I want to help us to see three reasons, and I want to draw three reasons out from the text today, out from verses 7 through 12, and I'm going to um, do so, basis, my basis for doing so is, is the three times in this passage of Scripture where John tells us to love one another. In verses 7 through 12, there's three times that he says, love one another. First of all, in verse 7, it, it's, it's, it's given to us as an exhortation. Let us love one another. And then he says, again, in verse 11, he puts it forth as a duty. We also ought to love one another. And then in verse 12, he presents it as sort of a hypothesis. If we love one another. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that exhortation, the first one. We are exhorted to love one another because of the source of true love, which is God. We are exhorted to love one another because of the source of true love, which is God. Now that may sound strange. We are commanded, we are exhorted, we are implored to to love God because God is the source of love. Well, let's, let's look at the text, verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another for, because, love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then in verse 8, as John ha- does customarily here in this, in this book, he, he pairs a positive statement with a negative one. Verse 8, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. Now, the t- two key clauses to these two verses here are, are, are the things that come, thing that comes at the beginning and at the end in regards to why we ought to love God. Number one, love is from God. And number two, God is love. With these clauses, God, John is saying that, that God is the source and the truest essence of love. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, a shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. That's God's love. But, but why are we commanded to love on the basis of these truths, on the basis of the fact that God is the source and the truest essence of love. Why is that the driving impetus behind the command for us to love? Well, the argument that John is making is what we've already seen in this epistle, and it's simply this. If we are truly born of God, meaning we are his children, then we must love Because we are offspring of the one from whom love flows and the one 
in whom love finds its fullest meaning. In other words, if you are a child of God, the offspring of the one from whom love comes, the one who is himself love, then you must love. You have to love or else you are not a true child of God. So John commands us, love one another. To do otherwise would be like me saying that I'm Chinese. But I can't tell you anything about any of the places in China, nor can I tell you anything about the culture of China, nor can I actually speak Chinese, nor do I have any physical features that most Chinese people have. You would rightly conclude that I am not Chinese. The person who who fails to love his brothers and sisters in Christ is doing the same thing. He is showing himself not to be who he claims to be. The person who loves his brother and sisters in Christ does show himself to be of God. Now we need to look at verse 7 again. When we read, it says, whoever loves has been born of God. We need to, to understand that love, not to be referring to some sort of generic love. The context of the letter makes it very clear that John's speaking here of a, of a special love, a, a brotherly love, a, a love that exists between the, the, the familial love that we spoke of a couple of weeks ago, something unique to God's people, a love that unites his people from different races, different social statuses, different generations, and countless other differences, and makes them one. And in that agape love, they, they supernaturally serve one another, minister to one another, exhort one another, die to self for one another. So we're not just talking about some sort of generic love here. For even unregenerate man is made in the image of God and has been given common grace and therefore he can exhibit love. What you're seeing on TV right now as people are are talking about how they've been affected by what happened in France. They're sharing, they'll say something like this, all my love goes out to those people in France. Well, mankind is able to a degree because, number one, he's made in the image of God to show some capacity of love. He can show some sort of love, but he cannot show the type of love verse 7 is actually speaking of here. So John's not speaking generically. He's speaking specifically of a specific type of love. No matter how noble and highly motivated our, our love that we have just within our mankind is, it falls short of the type of love that God's speaking of here because ultimately it refuses to make God the supreme object of his affections. And therefore we cannot fully experience the love of God. We cannot have the love of God indwelling in us if we don't first, exam, first receive God as the supreme source of love and the supreme expression of love. Therefore, we cannot love our fellow man to the degree we should if we don't have this supernatural love that flows from God and that exists within the body of believers. Now let's meditate a little bit more on these words. Love is from God. God is the fountain. God is the source. God is the head. God is the the genesis of love. It is in the very nature of God to love because God is triune. And there... In God, the infinite expression of love exists within the Godhead. John 3, verse 35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and loves the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and loves the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and loves the Son. Therefore, within himself, 
within the relationship of the Godhead springs forth love. And that love by nature is an outward flowing love, an other focused love. You see, only in a triune God can, can God love himself without being selfish while still also having an outward focused love. If God were a single person God, as the God of Islam, then his love would be selfish in nature. But God is not a single person God. He is three persons in one. So the glory of God's love is that the very triune nature of God is the reason that love exists. And that love within the Godhead is infinitely intense, infinitely good, infinitely satisfying. John 17, verse 24, Jesus said this when he prays to the Father, I desire that they also, speaking of us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So love is not something that God began to have when he created us. It existed before the foundation of the world. So the question that, that we ask ourselves is, well, why then did God create us? Why does, it even, why does he even love us? If his love within the Godhead is infinitely intense, infinitely good, and infinitely satisfying, well, then why does God create us? Does God's creation of mankind demonstrate that God's love was somehow incomplete within himself? Does he need creatures to whom he would give love and from whom he would receive love? No, God did not need us. God is not a needy romantic. We do not complete him. He is complete in himself. So why did he create us? I'll let Jonathan Edwards answer it. Jonathan Edwards says, Surely it is no argument of neediness in God that he is inclined to communicate of his infinite fullness. It is no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to overflow. So the love that God has shown us, the love that is living in us, is the overflow of God's love. He is the fountain. We are the recipients of that overflow. So we love because he loves us. We can only love in the way that God, that John has been showing us if he first loved us. We can only love because he first loved us. Love is from God. And then John also says, God is love. Now that statement of John's, that God is love, has been abused by many who want to, to absolutize it and make it the definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. Now love certainly finds its fullest expression and meaning in the Godhead, but God is not limited to the attribute of love. John is not saying that love is what God is. If so, we would be forced to infer that God is what love is. And if literally God is love, then we are duty-bound to worship love as God. Did you catch that? If we absolutize this and just say, well, God is the same thing as love, then guess what? Then we end up worshiping love, which is the problem with this society we live in today. We don't worship God. We worship love. So what's the argument for for? For same-sex marriage. Why would you stand in the way of two people that love each other? You say you, you, you love God and God is love. Then why, why are you standing in the way of these two people who love each other? What has happened is we've taken God is love, a statement like that, and we've turned love into God. And that's a problem. 
So John isn't giving us an ontological absolutization of God's nature. Instead, he is highlighting love as one of God's glorious attributes. There are many things that the Bible says God is. Matter of fact, this is the third time in this book alone, in, in 1 John, that we, we are told that God is something. Back in verse 5 of chapter 1, we read that God is light. Therefore, true believers walk in the light. Chapter 2, verse 29, we, we read that God is righteousness. Therefore, true believers practice righteousness. And so here, in verse four, 8 of chapter 4, and also in verse 16 of chapter 4, we read that God is love. Therefore, true believers walk in love toward one another. Again, we reflect our true Father, we reflect the one who has begotten us. If we are united to the Son, then we are folded into the love that is generated in God himself, and we are abiding in the one who is the full expression of the true nature of love. And that expression of God's love was put on display for the world to see. So we look at verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. That leads me to our second point this morning. We are expected to love. Not only are we exhorted to love, we are expected to love one another because of the display of true love, which is Jesus. We are expected to love one another because of the display of true love, which is Jesus. The love of God was made manifest. It was put on display. It was revealed to the world. God, and and by that, John means the Father. Oftentimes, God is used in a more general sense. But but in here, he's speaking of the Father. God sent. God initiated. God loved us first. God sent his only Son, the most precious thing he could send. He He didn't send merely a human prophet or an exalted angel. He sent his Son. His only begotten son. So God sent his son into the world. Love flowing out of the Godhead like a fountain and onto his creatures descended into our sinful world and the son came to die. He came to teach, yes. He came to exhort, yes. He came to heal, yes. But primarily he came to die and to die for sinners. Love from God, undeserved, unmerited. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only were we undeserving as sinners, we were incapable of knowing God and loving God on our own. Therefore, God's love had to be made manifest to us. God is the initiator. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Again, It's the very nature of God's Trinitarian love to be outward flowing. Therefore, God is the proactive agent in the love relationship we have with God. He sought us. God's love is foundational and prior to ours. Now, it had to be that way because without God initiating things, well, we would still be in rebellion against God. Verse 10 of Romans chapter 5. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And he died so that we might live in him. We were dead in our trespasses, but in him we are alive. So he he gives us this life. His proactive love gives us life and enables our love. Enables us to now have living and active love. We love because he loved us first. We love God because he initiated the relationship by pouring out his Trinitarian love 
onto us and then into us, and therefore we love. We have the Spirit that loves the Son and the Father, and we have love for others, especially the brothers, because it is in the nature of Trinitarian love to be other-focused. Verse 10 goes on to say, He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've already seen the word propitiation. Matter of fact, the only other time it's, it's mentioned in the whole New Testament is in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. The word means that God's wrath has been appeased. Our guilt has been removed. Our sins have been atoned for. God's love, therefore, isn't just generic and random. It's directly connected to his wrath. God's love for us, according to this text, is connected to the removal of his wrath. It's so strange to me how many people want to talk about God's love, but then want to totally ignore his wrath. You cannot have God's love if you don't have his wrath. It doesn't exist without the wrath. His, the ultimate expression of his love, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, is the removal of his wrath. That's the ultimate expression of his love, is for him to remove his anger against sin and sinners. John three sixteen. The, the, the passage we love to quote about God's love, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But listen to this. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of his only son. He's already under condemnation. Whoever does not believe, and now this is me, not John. Whoever does not believe is not a recipient of God's love, his Trinitarian love. As I said earlier, all men receive common grace, but those outside of the love that we are speaking of today are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God remains on them. Just a little bit further down that one, in that wonderful speech that Jesus gives to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So John connects true love that is from God. God is love to the removal of his wrath. So John says that in light of this wrath-appeasing love, we are expected to love, verse 11. So in light of all this, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought to. It should be part of our nature. It should be our natural response to God's love. Because of the love that defeats our sin, we should have supernatural love toward the brothers, Love that overcomes sin and breaks through the barriers that our sin causes. Romans 12, verse 19. Let love be genuine. Now again, we see the connection of love and what's bad, like evil. Listen to this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We do that because of God's wrath-removing love. And it's a love that allows us to overcome sin even within the body of Christ. 
1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Did you see that in this verse that I just read? It is God at work in us, enabling us to serve, enabling us to love. And that's why it's supernatural. And that leads me to my final point this morning. We are enabled to love one another because of the indwelling of true love, which is the Spirit. Do you see the Trinitarian focus of this passage? God is the initiator of love. It's poured out to us through the Son. It's poured into us and kept in us by the Spirit. No one has ever seen God, verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. God abides in us. Now we'll talk more about abiding in the upcoming sermons. But again, we see the enabling work of God in us. If we love one another, if we do what we just read in Romans 12 and in 1 Peter 4, if we live this way toward one another, then we know that God abides in us. And how does God abide in us? He abides in us through his spirit. We've been folded into Trinitarian love. The infinite and deep love of the Father made manifest in the Son's propitiatory work and now at work in us through the indwelling Spirit. Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We now have love in us. To return to my silly illustration from the beginning... Millie Vanilli were fake recording artists, not because they lip-synced performances, because they had, but because they had no talent in them. They had no ability in them. They were not singers. They were not and never would be musicians. Well, let's take another illustration. We call these shoeboxes over here, but ultimately what we're sending to the children isn't shoeboxes. I don't think a single child would be thrilled with you sending one of these boxes with nothing in it. What's most important is what's on the inside. We're sending them yo-yos and, and crayons and dolls and ultimately gospel tracks that will be in there. It's, that's what's going to them. It's what's on the inside that's important. And so it's what's on the inside. What is in believers? We are believers because of not who, not what is in us, but who is in us. And we're only able to love because of him who is in us. Only when we are indwelled by the Spirit can we keep the Father's command to love. So the sovereign work of God's love toward us and in us through the Holy Spirit does not negate our need to obey God's command, to strive toward loving one another. Some folks might say, well, I guess if true believers are going to love God anyway, and I guess if you can't love God, I mean, true believers are going to love one another anyway, and if you can't love unless the Holy Spirit's in you anyway, so I guess we're just passive in this whole thing. That's absolute foolishness. Just because... God is the one doing the work doesn't mean we are not called to obey the commands. We can talk more about that later, and we probably will in some of the upcoming, upcoming ser- sermons. The sovereign work of God's love toward us and in us through the Holy Spirit does not negate our need to obey God's command and to strive toward loving one, or, one another. Instead, it actually ensures that it'll happen. It ensures that we will keep the command. 
Outside of God's work in us, we won't love one another and we can't love one another. So God abides in us and then it says his love is perfected in us. This does not mean that in this lifetime we will somehow learn how to love perfectly or reach sinless perfection. I, I, I ran across an illustration this week. It's a story that goes, the story goes that there was a woman who approached um, the great preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon in a train station in Paddington Station in, in London. And, and this woman claimed to have achieved sinless perfection. She claimed that she had not sinned in years. So Spurgeon then stepped on her toes, and as he states in his autobiography, her sinless perfection departed like the morning dew. I mean, he, he physically stepped on her feet to show her there was plenty of sin still in her, and probably in him for doing that. We've already seen how John in this gospel categorically denies sinless perfectionism. So what does it mean here? Well, it's probably better translated as this. His love is made complete in us, simply meaning it is not lacking anything. When we love people, when we love our wives, our children, our friends, it's lacking. Our love sputters when we're in a bad mood or becomes absent when we've been hurt. It's deficient. It's lacking in the fullness. It's lacking in its essence, but not with God. Remember, we've been folded into Trinitarian love, the love of the Father on us, as we've been united to the Son, and in us, as we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So that perfect love of God is what's at work in us. That perfect love of God is designed to be seen by others in the way we love the brothers. Look at the first part of verse 12 again. No one has ever seen God. Now this is a theological statement about God that's backed up with other scripture. Paul in 1 Timothy 6.15 calls God the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So, so no one has ever seen God. Now that seems strange. Why is John putting that here? Why this little theological statement about the spiritual nature of God? Well, it should cause us, if you know the Gospel of John well enough, to jump back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 18. And John says the exact same thing. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. And then John says this in John 1, verse 18. He, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Jesus has made him known. Jesus, in his incarnation, made God known, made him visible to the world. What John is saying is that our love does the same thing. Of course, not to the same degree, but in some sort of way, our love is incarnational. Now, I know that's a buzzword, and it's used inappropriately in a lot of times. But I think in this case, with this text, what John is saying is that you can put flesh on God, in a sense, by living out love for one another. You demonstrate the love of God. The unseen God is to be seen in how we love one another. The unseen God who was... uh, once revealed historically in the person of Christ, is also being revealed in his people if and when we truly love one another. One of the best books I've ever read is a book that actually I loaned to someone and lost, not at this church, so nobody worry. Um, It's a book called To End All Wars. Has anyone read that book, To End All Wars? It was previously titled, um, originally published as Through the Valley of Kwai. 
It was written by a man by the name of Ernest Gordon who was captured in World War II and imprisoned in one of those infamous Japanese prisoner of war camps. In the book, he tells of a genuine revival that overtook the prison camp. The camp was a horrifying sea of mud and filth, and the prisoners were subjected to inhumane labor and brutal torture at the hands of brutal, heartless Japanese guards. There was hardly any food available, and many persons in the camp starved to death. The law that ruled the camp was every man for himself. And the prisoners subsequently treated each other like wild beasts, like animals. Most of the prisoners were unbelievers, including Gordon, who himself was an agnostic. But one day, Gordon and the others witnessed a prisoner who was starving to death share his last morsel of food with another prisoner who was also in desperate need. The man then died. The man who shared his food then died. The other prisoners were stunned by this act of sacrificial generosity. And so when they went through his belongings, they found a Bible. And wondering if the secret to such love was in that book, they began reading it one by one, one after another. Soon the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, gripped the camp, and men began to love one another in astounding ways, including one man who took a beating that led to his own death in the place of another prisoner. Within a year of that moment that that person shared his last bit of food with the other person, within a year, 2,000 men were gathering together on Christmas Day to worship God in spite of their captors who forbid them to worship. Among those worshipers was this man who wrote the book, Ernest Gordon. No one in that camp had ever seen God physically with their eyes, but God was seen in that camp through one simple act of love that one man demonstrated toward another. And revival broke out. So friends, my question for us, is God seen in this place? Is the Trinitarian love of God manifest here at Harbin's? We are exhorted to love. We are expected to love. And we are enabled to love. Don't we see... If we don't have love, we don't have anything. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging, clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let me illustrate it. Some of you have seen this illustration before. Okay, this is a simple question. Children, what number is that? It's zero, right? Now, each one of these zeros is going to represent something. That zero represents perhaps the talents, the skills, the abilities that we bring to the church. So perhaps you have a... a eloquent speech when people hear you talk and teach they think you you speak with the the tongues of men and angels now i think that's probably referring to speaking in tongues but but regardless say you even do that or let's say perhaps you are a theologian of the of the highest order you make rc Sproul look like nothing and you just have such insight into the word 
you are one of these people who understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And, or maybe you're someone, let's put another zero up there, who has tremendous faith, taking a step of faith, stepping out and doing something that seems insane to the, to the regular world is easy for you because God's been giving you the, the gift of faith. Or maybe you're the kind of person that can let go of all your stuff. You, you're the kind of person who will he'll give everything away. I give, you give away all you have, or, or maybe even you're brave and bold and willing to, willing to give up your body, even, or countless other things that you might be able to do. Here's another simple question. Children, what do all those zeros add up to? Nothing unless it has something at the beginning. You put a one in front of those zeros and it changes everything. Love is the number one. Love is what turns everything else into something valuable. All these other great things that that you or I might have in in the giftedness and the talents and everything else that God has given us, my friends, it's simply a zero on a page if it's not driven by love for the brothers. So don't boast in your giftedness if you're not using it to bless the body. The one makes everything else valuable. Love is what determines whether or not everything else we have is of any value. Because if you don't have love, you gain nothing, according to Paul. So love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is Love. Believers, we must love one another. We should love one another. And we can love one another. We have been born of the one from whom is love. The one who is love. When we love, we look like our Father. And we show the world what He's like. And we can love because He has put His Spirit in us. We are genuine. We are true believers because of what is in us. To the unbeliever here in the room this morning, I beg you to come and put your hope in Christ alone for your salvation. Do not neglect the love that God has shown to the world. He sent his son to be the propitiation for the sins of his people. So come, turn to Christ in faith, turn away from yourself in repentance, and be folded into the eternal, infinite, all-satisfying, Trinitarian love of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to love like this, but we know how weak we are. And so, Holy Spirit, we beg you to do a work in us. Show us where we are not living consistently with the word that you've given us about love. 
Oh, how often that we're resentful, irritable. How weak we are. How seldom we actually bear all things, believe all things, endure all things. So forgive us, Lord, of our lack of love and stir up something special in Harbin's. Let us not just have the generic love that the world has. My thoughts are with you. No, let us have genuine love, Father, that we fall on our knees in prayer for one another. And we serve one another. And we're willing to give it all up, give everything we have for one another because we love. We love you and we love the brothers. And so now, Father, as we come and as Deemer gets ready to lead us through the Lord's Supper, Father, may we recognize that this is an expression of love. We are brothers around a table. We are a family. This is a family meal. And it's pointing to a great family meal that is yet to come. And it's representing, it's remembering the reason we can love. It's because, Jesus, your blood was shed. And your body was broken on our behalf. So, Father, guide us now with your spirit to respond appropriately through the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.